You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Well, welcome to Artists Have Never Been More Important, a co-production of the Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas. My name is Killian Quigley. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute. And on behalf of SEI, I want first to say welcome and thanks for being here. I'd also like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet this evening, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, as well as our practices, practices of teaching, learning, and research, may we be mindful and respectful of the knowledge embedded forever with an Aboriginal custodianship of country. Next up, some thanks to the whole Sydney Ideas crew, to my fellow travelers in imagining and organizing, Associate Professor Anne Elias, and SEI Deputy Director Michelle St. Anne, to our expert colleagues at SEI, Eloise Fetterplace, Anastasia Mortimer, co-directors Ian McCallan and David Schlossberg, and again, to all of you for your attendance. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have our keynote presentation followed by two shorter 10-minute responses. And then, because I'll be doing my job and keeping us on schedule, we'll have time for questions from all of you. And it's my privilege now to say a few words about the persons you've come here to see. Bill Fox is director of the Center for Art and Environment at the Nevada Museum of Art. Central to his research are the ways that landscapes come into being where land and human cognition meet. He is a writer of, among other things, 15 collections of poetry and 11 works of nonfiction. Janet Lawrence is an Australian artist of national and international repute. Her practice can be described, I think, in part, as an attempt to make visible the ways that human beings relate to environment and to make those relationships more numerous as well as more integral. In just the past few years, Janet's work has appeared at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, at the Australian Museum, and at the Natural History Museum in Paris, in conjunction with the United Nations Framework on Climate Change Convention. That's to name only a very few of her very recent achievements. Associate Professor Ian Maxwell is Chair of the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies at the University of Sydney. He is a writer of many and various works, which have garnered him, among other things, the Marlis Tiersch Prize for Research Excellence. He's also a director of, for instance, last year's path-breaking Sydney production of Prince Betliagand, a satirical cabaret originally written and performed by Jewish prisoners as the Teretzin Ghetto during World War II. That's enough from me for now. Friends, please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Bill Fox.
I've always wanted a voice like that. <laughs> and that kind of measured tone. Killing, that was very nice. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here with all of you this evening. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I direct the Center for Art and Environment, which is the only research institute of its kind in the world. And uh, the primary activity we conduct is to roam about and collect archives from artists who are having investigations into how creativity intersects, intersects with natural built and even virtual environments. So uh, I'm going to walk us through a couple of different strains tonight. And there are some things that are in common between these two strains of thought, one of which is relatively small responses, relatively small responses, uh, to various kinds of mm, environmental changes that are happening very quickly on the planet. And then another strain is the larger scale responses. Some things in common between them. One thing that I noticed in collecting archives for the last 10 years for the museum is that artists increasingly are trying to walk in the world. They're trying to deal mm, perhaps less with satisfying the needs of a gallery for having a consistent body of work that refers only to itself. They actually want to deal with the world, the planet, and its problems. And in order to do that, they have to have a research-based practice. They have to work with scientists, talk with them, understand what they do. And then they have to do it collaboratively with other people, other artists, various kinds of scientists, and general populations and communities. I know one person who actually managed to build a cyclotron in his basement when he was 17. That's Murray Gell-Mann. He got the Nobel Prize for discovering the quark. Kind of a bright guy. Um, I don't know any other scientist who can do something like that now, who can actually build an instrument of that sophistication and then conduct research on it and discover something new as a solo endeavor. Likewise, it's very difficult for artists to deal with big problems in the world by trying to do it on themselves, with the, by themselves. So let me walk us through a few things. The first thing is this chart. And are these lights as low as they're going to go? Because it's going to be hard for everyone to see the images. If it's possible to lower the lights, that would be great. Um, this is a, a knowledge chain that was developed by a guy named Jerry Schubel, who was the director of the Aquarium of the Pacific in California. And Jerry was commissioned to find out why field station funding in the sciences was going down. And it was odd because the field stations were doing great work. I mean, they had these deeply sensed landscapes around North America and around the world. And they produced terrific data. That's that lower left-hand corner of that, of that graph, right? They produced terrific data. And they turned the data, bless you, into knowledge, right? They actually they write papers. They, they create information from the data. They analyze it, and they create knowledge. And so they're doing good work. And why is it? that they're losing funding and being put out of business. At the upper right-hand corner of that very steep curve, ascending curve, is policy and action. That is, how do you get from scientific knowledge or knowledge about the world and how you get up to actually having some kind of coherent policy and action. And of course, I come from a country right now which is decidedly anti-factual at some quarters, so I'm really interested in this dynamic. Um, and what Jerry said was, you know, what's in between, what occupies that steep part of that curve is a sparsely populated domain. And that's where the humanities reside. And this is why artists are more important than ever. How you get from the collection of data and the creation of knowledge up to how we actually act in the world in a responsible manner is a really hard task. And artists are an important part of that project. And I'm going to give you some examples. So here's the museum where I work. Uh, it's a, it's a 20,000 plus square meter facility. It's 85 years old. The center is only about 10 years old. That first line of windows you can see shining there on the side of the building on the right side, that's the center. 
And it consists primarily of archives and a library and storage and desks for people to come study the stuff we have. The next thing we're going to do with this building is create another building the same size that's going to be just the Center for Art and Environment because we're growing so quickly. I have 125 archives from all seven continents. That's a million items, more than a million items now in that archive, and that will be 10 million items within the next several years. Now, that's one of those images that's almost impossible to see. Yeah, sorry about that. This is, well, that's because it's a photograph taken at night. Yes. It's by a guy named Jim Sanborn, and um, Jim was the artist in residence for the CIA headquarters. Every public building in America, published, uh, built with government money, has to spend a half of 1% of its construction cost on an art project, and he designed the art project for the CIA, and, while he, and it's a series of coded enclosures, um, two levels of which have been broken, the third level of which only the director of the CIA has the key to, and it's yet to be broken. While Jim was there, he found out the CIA had this really cool projector that could throw light over a very long distance on big things. And he said, can I borrow it? And they said, what on earth for? And he said, well, I want to go do that. So what he's done is he's thrown the Western cartographic grid, the cartographic imperative of our civilization, on a Navajo sacred site, Shiprock in New Mexico, at Four Corners. And it's a, you know, it's a huge volcanic plug. You're not allowed to climb it. Of course, it's been climbed, but we're not allowed to. And in fact, you're not even allowed to go near this and touch it as a white person anymore. And that's not a bad idea. I mean, it's like Uluru amped up on steroids, right? And, but he puts this grid on it as a temporary gesture to say, OK, so what's the dialogue between that condition of sacredness and our condition of secularity? What's, what's the difference? What's the difference between this object as a geological feature and a cathedral in Chartres? So what he is doing, what Jim is doing, is making us look at a difference. And if you see difference in the world, then you have information. As Gregory Bateson said, all information is news of difference. That's a little brighter. So here's another way of, of projecting difference. These are these graphs made by Will Steffen at ANU. Um, he's working with Paul Kreutzen. Kreutzen, of course, defines the Anthropocene. How many people here? Everyone knows the Anthropocene, right? Pretty much, yeah. OK, the geolog you don't? How many people do not know the term the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene? No, you all know what it is. Okay. So Will Steffen is basically figuring out, Will Steffen is figuring out how many different things have changed, have suffered a great acceleration since the 1950s, since World War II, and have contributed to or allied with that are at least correlative if not causal to the condition of the planet changing very quickly. And it's not just the climate. I mean, the planet is changing quickly. And the entire geomorphological regime is being altered. So he's looking at everything from the rise in international tourism, the number of telephones increasing, the number of motor vehicles, urban population going up, the number of McDonald's, along with changes of, of chemistry in the atmosphere and in the ocean. So this is the great acceleration that happened. This is what happens when you take, you build a military industrial machine that does a really good job of prosecuting a global war. It wins it. And then what's it do? So, and I'll, I'll tell this story. A couple of people here have heard this before. Raytheon was a corporation in World War II that was de charged with developing with the military radar. And there was a technician who walked in front of, and this is after the war now, it's in the late 40s, he walks in front of an active radar unit. He has a chocolate bar in his pocket. The chocolate bar melts. That's how we get the very first, literally, microwave oven. That's the Amana radar range. That's where that comes from. It's from radar unit. So anyway, so that, that military-industrial complex gets very, and that's one of a, you know, a thousands and thousands of examples of kind of a conversion of prosecuting, you know, in this case, consumerism around the world. That's why we have this great acceleration in part, along with an increasing population. 
This is another way of showing change that occurs during the Great Acceleration. This is the, basically the glacier on top Mount Kenya, one of them. And Simon Norfolk has lit up in fire and then made a long exposure, a series of exposures he stitched together of that fire that show you where the edge of the glacier used to be. That's a kind of graph. That's a sort of visualization of a data set, but it's a handsome artwork at the same time. So it's not just a graph, it's an, and it's not just an illustration. It's a performative instantation, if you will, of the receding of a glacier. So these are these small-scale responses to, to climate change. This is Larry Mitchell, a guy who, a painter who lives just south of Fremantle. Anybody here ever heard of Larry Mitchell? How many of you know Larry Mitchell? Yeah, okay, one person. So Larry, I mean, I've collected his archive, and we gave him a show. It was one of the most popular exhibitions we've ever had. You know, 60,000 people came and looked at his paintings. Larry um, is a, a, um, a kind of a, a wild man. He's a sailor. He paints in his backyard in his shorts, and and uh, smokes unfiltered cigarettes, and he goes out sailing all the time, and he was sailing out on the Arbohos Islands off the west coast of Western Australia, and, um, and looking at these villages and visiting his friends and just having a great time, and there were lots of fish and lots of fun, but pretty soon he was painting things like this. So what's wrong with this picture? I mean, this is this, this beautiful kind of, you know, sketch of an island that's coming apart. So you can see that the trees are dying. You can see that the shacks are not being rebuilt. You can see that everything is kind of bleached underwater and empty. What's going on? And it took him a long time to realize it wasn't just the Japanese trawler, trawlers that were hoovering up all the fish off the seafloor and killing the villages in terms of the, their economies, right? It was the incursion of seawater from rising sea levels that was killing the vegetation. And it was the fact that cyclones were coming through three times a year instead of once every three years and taking apart all of the structures on the island and there's no wood to rebuild them. And it was just becoming an untenable situation. So after he, he is making these kinds of paintings for a number of years, he finally says, okay, I've got it. I'm going to call this a one centigrade degree project because that's the temperature rise in the oceans here, out here in the Indian Ocean. And that's what's killing these villages. That's what's going on or part of what's going on. So this is a guy who's a traditional painter who basically is thinking about James Cook and pasting coastal profiles of where you go sailing so you know where to drop a safe anchor. He's making these beautiful land and seascapes in an 18th century mode, and he's discovering, he's documenting climate change, among other things. Now this is Richard Misrak, and Richard, um, he's a very famous American photographer, and he's a really solitary guy. He doesn't like to be in the field with other people. I've tried for years. Uh, another, uh, another writer friend, Rebecca Solent, same thing. She's tried for years to go out with Richard and, and see if we can work with him. And he's really nice, but he just doesn't want anybody around, right? So this is a picture he took in part of a project where he starts to, for the first time, be in partnership with someone else, Kate Orff. She's a landscape architect. She got a MacArthur Prize this year in America. That's one of those genius awards, right? And um, this is a picture of an oil pipeline in a Louisiana bayou, and What's happening is not that the pipeline itself, but everything associated with the pipeline, all the infrastructure to make that thing work has killed everything around it. Kate starts making maps like this, saying these are the toxic sites along the Mississippi River in this corridor where America processes its chemicals and, and much of its uh, fossil fuels. And then they're coming together where Richard's making a photograph and she's identifying all of the specific chemicals at these sites in this plant, right? 
And then they mount something like this. Now, Richard is used to high-end museum quality exhibitions, big pristine prints in big frames on big walls and lots of space between them and not many labels, right? Look at the, the rhetoric of this display. It's not about being an artist. It's about being an educator as to what's going on in the environment. So he completely turns himself inside out, and he's actually working with someone else for a change, which is, for those of us who have tried to go out with him, lovely. Another person who started out as a solo photographer, this is Susanna Saylor. She was a high-end photo fashion photographer for magazines such as Vogue, traveling around the world. And she reads uh, an essay by Elizabeth Colbert in The New, York, in the New Yorker, a three-part essay about climate change, and she gets scared to death. And she says, I've got to do something about this. So she says, wherever I go in the world, I will go to a site of science where climate change is being measured, and I'll document that site. I'll photograph that site. And I'll try to do it in a way that's aesthetically interesting. And so this is in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru. And it shows basically the permafrost breaking up and a glacier receding and so forth. Although it doesn't, you don't know that just by looking at that. You have to kind of be told that, right? You need a label. And then here she is saying, well, that wasn't quite enough. Maybe if I actually put a measuring device, if I put a scientific device into the frame, people will understand, oh, the water's lower than it used to be. Okay, and that tells part of a story. And she thinks, I want to publish a book of these photographs. And she, she and her husband, uh, Ed Morris, who was a all but dissertation PhD in Chinese literature from Harvard, he then became a, a, a private investigator, a PI, uh, for corporate, um, corporate spying in New York City. Gave him a perfect background to do this kind of research. And um, they come to see me about doing a book. Bill, would you write for this book and so forth? And I said, yeah, but you realize a bunch of other people are doing these books, right? And they're like, oh. And I said, you realize no publisher's going to pay to do this book. You're going to have to pay to have the book published. And they go, oh. And then they come up with an interesting idea. What if they form a nonprofit organization and start working with other artists and other kinds of institutions? So they create a thing called the Canary Project which is a nonprofit organization that sponsors the work of other artists. This is Eve Mosher. She's tracing a line along lower Brooklyn, and she's basically saying on the right side of the lane, line, you're going to be underwater if the sea level rises several feet. On the left-hand side, the waves will be lapping at your, at your toes. And she uses that as a device for conversation in the city. And people would come out and say, what are you doing? And they'd say, you're kidding. And they'd say, what can we do about that? This is Christina Seeley. Uh, this is a photo another photographer um, who used to work on her own. And she's photographing uh, species, in this case a giant tortoise and the Galapagos, that are, are going to be or are already being affected by uh, climate change. But it's not just doing this anymore. She makes these daguerreotypes. And then, with the Canary Project, they work with an institution such as, in this case, Harvard's Museum of Zoology. And, and they basically create a gallery of portraits of animals that have been put out of existence by, by environmental change or are threatened by environmental change. And so it becomes this collaborative effort. So that's a marvelous example, I think, of where you're using research and coming back to the research institution actually and fulfilling this. So these are examples of people working in teams. Cape Farewell is a, the world's largest and oldest art and climate change project, based once in London, now in Dorset. And this is a boat, a very well-known boat to people who work up uh, in Svalbard and go to Long Urbian and so forth. It's a steel-clad, steel-reinforced, um, you know, two-masted boat that basically takes, in this case, artists and scientists to the Arctic to go make work in response to the change. Now, David Buckland's another sailor. What's with these sailors, right? See, the sense of change before everybody else because they're in the bloody water, right? So David Buckland's a sailor in 1999, 
And he's beginning to chart a voyage he's going to take solo, um, sailing up in the North Atlantic. And one of his oceanographic buddies says, uh, David, you know, actually, it's a really bad idea right now because things are changing up there. And he says, what do you mean they're changing? So, well, the currents are changing. There's going to be a lot more icebergs. And you probably ought to, like, not do what you're going to think you're going to do. And so he says, well, why are they changing? So, well, Greenland's melting, basically. It's all fresh waters coming to the regime. The Gulf Stream's moving around, and it's just getting nasty up there. And he says, well, how come everybody doesn't know about this? And the guy said, well, we're trying to tell everyone about it, but no one's listening. No one's believing us. So David says, well, that's bogus. So in 2001, he starts Cape Farewell. And he starts by taking artists such as Rachel White-Reed White uh, up to the high Arctic and to look at it and make work in response. This is her show um, in the Tate Turbine Hall. Um, and it's a really funny mixture. It's actually about the boxes in her mother's attic when her mother dies and she has to move all the boxes out. So it's a big stack of white boxes, but it's also the interior of a glacier. So it's called embankment. This is Anthony Gormley actually working on the ice up in the islands. Um, and he's making, uh, with Peter Clegg, who's a, an architect, and he's making structures that are the size of what it takes to create a habitat for yourself under the ice or on top of the ice or on the surface of the ice. And here's David Buckland himself. He has this photographic series where he's projecting these sayings by various artists from around the world um, actually onto the ice. Burning Ice is the name of the, the first book from Cape Farewell, uh, and that's in one of these projections, and it's on the front of the book. It's very recognizable. It's another archive we collect, and we'll do a show of this work in 2020. So here's David collaborating with Ian McEwan um, and you know, David Byrne and uh, all of these artists and writers and choreographers from around the world. This next big project, David's, David's 70 years old, and uh, he says basically it's, I, I, I'm too old for this. It's too cold. I got to go somewhere warm. So his new project will be in the Marshall Islands, and he's just been there with an American photographer, Michael Light. They're putting together kind of a two-pronged project. Michael's going to look at nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands, and David's going to look at sea level rise. And that should be, that we'll collect that archive and do that exhibition, and I think that's where I'm going to be next March. So here's this graph again. So here's another direction. Here's an, okay, I'm going to wait. People want to take pictures of that, so I'm going to wait for a second. Got it? Good. So if you look at these, these charts and graphs, and then you look at something like this, and there's kind of sort of, a, sort of a structural similarity. This is William Garnett in 1950. He's been commissioned um, by a real estate developer uh, in Los Angeles to fly over a thing called uh, Lakewood. It's uh, a suburb that was just being planned for the guys coming home from the war, and families to get started in, and so it's, it's, you know, a series of maybe three different house plans and all done, built very quickly. This technology comes from the Seabees in World War II. Seabees were the American construction crew working for the Navy. So you'd go to an island, you'd scrape the island clean, uh, and one crew would come through and pour foundations, another crew would come through and put up a frame, another crew would come through and put on a roof and so forth. So basically it's turning the earth into a factory assembly line, except it's not moving, we're moving. They came home, and the guy who invented that it was a guy who was, was making actually very high-end suburbs before the war. He asked the service people he was working with, he said, what are you going to do when you get home? They all said, have families. And he said, huh. So he comes home and he starts building these things. So William Garnett is, you know, is photographing these various stages of construction from the air. This ends up as a central image in a book called This is the American Earth by um, Ansel Adams and Nancy Newhall. And it's the first book published by the Sierra Club, and it becomes one of the foundational documents in the founding of the environmental movement in America. 
William Garnett was so disturbed by these, what he photographed, he moved. He went to San Francisco, and, uh, which now looks just like LA. Um, in any case, here's another kind of topology, right, where you're making a catalog of the human footprint around the world. So if you look at the history of landscape art, you know, you'll see that people were cataloging through painting and drawing and then photography, cataloging the natural world through most of the 19th century. But by, we get to, by the time you get to the mid-20th century, you know, the human footprint's everywhere and it's growing fast. And so this is the Bechers in Germany. They're photographing these blast furnaces in the Ruhr Valley. A side story to this is very interesting. Germany makes its target, target uh, you know, under the Kyoto protocols, right, for emissions. They do it by dismantling these blast furnaces and shipping them off to China where they're reassembled without the pollution controls to, take the, to make steel to send back to Germany to make cars. So the world's a place that does go in circles after all. So when you look at these things, here's a different kind of response to the human footprint, a literal human footprint. So there's a group of artists who um, in, the in the 1960s begin to think about, I don't want to make a picture of something. I want to do something directly with the earth directly with Earth as a substance and the Earth. This is Richard Long making a line in 1966. And he's walking in the wet grass in the morning, and it just creates a trace of his passage. That's the actual artwork. This is just a trace. This photograph is a trace of his artwork. And that's a very, very modest gesture, a small gesture, right? And just talks about literally the human passage. He makes bigger gestures later on. This is a little bit later. This is in the mid-'70s, and he's making, actually, early-'70s. And he's making a gesture um, in Peru very close to the Nazca Plains. So he's making his own kind of Nazca line, if you will. And all he does, all he's doing is this is gently brushing aside the surface of the desert to get the dark stones away from the light dirt and, and set up a regime. And that line actually will last a very long time. So unlike his footprints in the dewy grass. But these are modest gestures. And this is a very European kind of response to land art and to earthworks, where you don't have a lot of money. It's arte povera. You're using the materials at hand. And you're making these kind of quiet gestures. This is not a quiet gesture. This is double negative by Michael Heiser in 1969-1970. And you can see down at the bottom there, and I, I, I have a, yeah, that's a van, that's a big tent. This is a Land Arts of the American West course from the University of Texas, uh, from Texas Tech in, uh, in Lubbock. And this is a, a structure, this is two tren trenches um, that displace about 240,000 tons of dirt and rock. It's up above the, sorry, up above the Virgin River, it's down here. Uh, this mesa, uh, the property was brought from Michael Heiser by Virginia Dwan, an art gallery dealer, and he carves an artwork that displaces material that goes down in these fans down here. So it's got, you've got two negative spaces that displace two fans of material, so it's a double negative in all senses of the word, and it's about the size of the Empire State Building laying down on its side. Think of a really big cruise ship, right, laying, laying in the water. Michael Heiser is not content to let the only people to leave marks of scale on the surface of the planet be shopping mall builders, developers, and freeway designers. He wants to be an artist who is making gestures at that scale to talk about the human footprint. He is not an environmental artist. He could care less. He just wants cheap dirt to move around. This was his one-time friend, Robert Smithson, very famous piece, Spiral Jetty in the Great Salt Lake. So one state over from Nevada, double negatives in Nevada. This is in, in Utah. Um, standard photograph, pretty much. Um, I don't need to say too much about it. It's about 1,500 feet long, curled up on itself. It's a, 
um, a, a form that's used by almost every native population on the planet, uh, known, to, known to us throughout history and prehistory. Um, and Robert Smithson is dealing with entropy, things that come and go and things that rise and fall and, and disappear. What's interesting about this piece for me is it will disappear permanently at some point because the lake bed itself is rising as silts wash out of the mountains. Um, and it's not, I mean, this has been underwater many times and come out of the water. Eventually, it's going to be underground, not just underwater. So it's about change. And again, it's a, it's a big, beautiful gesture. When you get into this landscape and actually look at it, it's not that large. It's pretty small. It's a big landscape there. You guys know this piece, right? Cristo, wrapped coastline, right? Early, early Cristo piece, 68, I think. Um, done here just in the, in the south part of what is now Sydney. It was south of Sydney in those days. Supported by John Caldor, commissioned by John Caldor. Um, now, here's a piece that's really big. That's a million square feet of fabric. That's a really big piece. But it's temporary. It's ephemeral. It goes up for a while and then gets taken away. I'm not sure the Environmental Protection Agency in America would even let you do this today. They certainly would not let you do double negative. They certainly wouldn't let you do spiral jetty, right? The environmental protocols are too tight, and for a good reason. And of course, here's Christo's running fence uh, in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. I like this particular photograph taken by John Franco Gorgoni, who also took the photograph of spiral jetty uh, and has been photographing these guys for years, because it shows you how long that line is in the landscape before it disappears into the sea. Again, it's a temporary project. The, what it took to do that in terms of environmental permissions, because by then, you know, we had, you had to do environmental assessments and so forth, um, what it took to do that was enormous. It, we've just put up seven pillars of rock in the desert outside of Las Vegas. They're about 35 or 40 feet tall. It took us four years and $4 million and the state's largest legal team to get permissions to do that. And for good reason, for good reason. This is what Michael Heiser is just finishing. This is um, one of the largest, two largest land art projects in the world. This is called City. Um, what you're looking at is a structure. This is ranch. He grows alfalfa and he raises buffalo uh, on them because you get a tax break to do that. Um, and then this is about a mile and a third long. It's 20 feet deep, 20 feet high above grade. Um, and it features this thing called Complex One. That was his first part of the project. Uh, and then some geometry down here. So it's a, it's a dialogue between European angular geometry and more curvilinear organic Mesoamerican geometry. And that's basically what he's interested in. Mike kind of became a little bit more environmental in this, in this work. Um, he's, he's planted native grasses on the side of the berm, and you can't, I don't have a slide of it with me, but um, when you're in the valley, you come into the valley, you don't even see this work. You see the cottonwood trees around his house, but you don't actually see the work. It's very quiet in the landscape. And here's what it looks like from another angle. Enormous structure. Um, it's basically finished, finished, but Mike is a very grumpy guy. I don't think he wants anybody there until he's dead. So in theory, it's supposed to open in 2020 and you could go see this, but I have my doubts. Looks surrealistic, doesn't, doesn't even look like it's in the landscape. Um, I just want to point out something though that's kind of interesting, and that's these little circles that you see in the landscape here. Oh, well, these little circles you see in the landscape here, those are harvester ants, and they're moving more dirt in this valley than Mike has moved in the sculpture, <laughs> just so you get some perspective. And here you can see Mike standing next to one of those angular geometries at the near end that we just saw, so you can kind of get a sense of the scale. I mean, this thing is really big, so. Now this is the other really big project in America. Mike's, Mike's project has cost about $24 million. 
uh, and it's just about done. This is James Terrell, $24 million and climbing. Uh, this is Roden, Roden Crater in northern Arizona outside of Flagstaff. It's 600 feet tall. It's about three kilometers wide, I guess, in diameter. Um, and what Terrell has been doing is creating these spaces inside the crater. So it's a cinder cone. You can't just drill through it and do something, right? You can't just make a tunnel or whatever. What you have to do is dig a huge trench, and then you make what you're going to make, and then you cover it over again, right? So it's a very odd process. And he's, this is a naked eye observatory. It's the largest naked eye observatory in the world. This is just one small component of it. As it says, south space down there, there's, there's a cardinal space. So you've got four of these enormous spaces around the crater, six different tunnels. Here's one of these tunnels. You can't see it very well in this light, but there are little footlights here, and it, it's very elaborate. It's really a, a, it's the only large piece I've not been to, personally, but I, looking at the photographs, you know, it's a knockout, knockout work. Here's a picture at night, which, again, you can't see very well. But, um, so this is, the, this is the central oculus of the crater, uh, and you walk uh, through a corridor, and you explore this space, and you look up here, and you see different celestial phenomena at different times of the year and in different years and in different centuries. Uh, and then you continue along, uh, along a one of those tunnels until you come up here. If you lay down on one of these lit plinths that's around the center, um, what happens is because he has trimmed the crater to be perfectly level around its edge, the, bowl turn, the sky turns into an inverted bowl. It's celestial vaulting. That's what he wants you to experience is this sense of the sky being something that's been turned upside down uh, and becomes this perfectly optical phenomenon. Very interesting when that happens. You can find that in nature in big deserts sometimes. So James Terrell was not hanging out in New York City with Michael Heiser and everybody else in the 1960s. He was busy being a pilot, uh, and he was flying uh, Buddhist monks out of Bur what was then Burma to China for the CIA. I don't know how the CIA gets involved in so much of this. Um, but Heiser and all these guys were, were hanging out at Max's Kansas City, which was a bar in New York City, and they were arguing strenuously about the nature of, of life and art. And there's a woman sitting quietly in one corner, Patricia Johansson, and she makes this gesture. This is a 1,500-foot-long painted sculpture in parts. It's a rainbow line that runs along an abandoned rail bed. And, so this, and, and Patricia is a very important early artist who's just kind of now being rediscovered. And this is what she's done most recently. This is just finished now in the last couple of months. Um, this is part of a flood control structure in downtown Utah. So Patricia goes from making these kinds of abstract sculptures to designing experimental gardens to doing sort of fountain places and spaces in front of museums. And then she gets commissions to do various kinds of public works that have to do with controlling water, whether it's wastewater treatment plants or, in this case, floods. This was a project where she was originally brought into Salt Lake, and they said, can you give us something pretty to look at, um, kind of in this little gorge that's going to go under a freeway in downtown Salt Lake City? And she said, yeah, well, that's fine. I'd love to do that. But you do realize you have a problem on your hands. This is going to flood. The way you're setting this up, the way you've designed this, you're going to flood. And the engineers said, kind of patted her on the head and said, well, no, no, we're engineers. We know what we're doing. And she says, well, gentlemen, carry on. Have a good time. She leaves. They call her up a year later, and they say, hi, um, Ms. Johansson, we have a problem. It's flooding. Can you come help us? And so this is a woman who not only is an artist but also actually has training as an architect, and moves in and creates these concrete uh, structures. This is a part of a canyon. So it's not exactly a replica. It is an artistic interpretation of one of the canyon walls uh, made of sandstone outside of Salt Lake City. 
And these features here at the end, these sort of towers, these are called hoodoos. Those are very typical of the geology in the area. And she creates um, a little canyon in downtown that is imbued with explicit histories um, that go from uh, prehistoric and native peoples all the way through the Mormons who colonized the area. This is, and it's part of this larger project. And this is uh, the Sago Lily Dam. And this is the only dam ever designed as a sculpture or a sculpture designed as a dam that I can think of, that I know of. And these are photographs. These are photographs Patricia's sending me. It's, I mean, it's not quite finished. She says, look, look at where we are. We're almost finished, you know. So she's moving more dirt than Michael Heiser these days because she's doing it in service to a social good. It's, it, Americans are nothing if not pragmatic, right? So Americans get really grumpy about Michael Heiser making city because it doesn't do anything. My God, you've ruined this valley. You've moved so, moved so much dirt. Well, no, Patricia's moving more dirt, but she's doing it for something utilitarian, so it's okay. So I, I actually have a quarrel with that, but that's a... That's another topic. Turpin and Crawford, local people. Um, and I just was speaking uh, at an event, uh, sort of valorizing them and, and, and kind of analyzing what they've done. Um, and this is this marvelous project that takes um, um, a channelized creek that's been turned into a storm drain um, you know, in the 1970s. And it's going to get here eventually. It's going to be, it's going to be re-meandered and rewilded and, and, and put back to some semblance of, of nature. It is not going to be restored to what it was. You can't do that. You can't restore nature back to nature in a previous time. But what you can do is, is re-imbue it with functionality. So that's what's going to happen. And, what's going to, and, and according to, to, you know, to Jennifer and McKaylee, what's going to happen is that the people who live in this neighborhood are scared to death about letting the water loose out of this channel. So what they do is they come and they create a, a sculpture that retraces, basically, the memory of the creek that used to be there, where it used to flow. They, they, they mow this, dig it up, plant wild rye, leave it for a season, harvest it, and that allows the people in that neighborhood to interact with their landscape in a way that gives them both, brings back a memory of what was there and also gives them a taste of what's going to, going to come. When the, when the creek is rewilded, so to speak. So I'm just beginning to learn about their practice. Uh, it's decades long. It's a sophisticated, a wildly imaginative, really important practice. And it's one I'll be talking about and writing about for years. So I'm really, uh, I'm really thrilled. So thank you guys for letting me come on in. Yeah. Uh, kind of a related in, in a certain way to both Patricia Johansson and, and to Turner Crawford. Um, this is work by another team. Um, you, it's where, you, again, you have to have a bigger skill set to address the problems of the world. This is Daniel McCormick and Mary O'Brien in Marin County, not far from where Running Fence was made. And um, they were brought in to address a stream bed that was eroding. And if that stream bed goes, then this whole neighborhood's going to go. So the, the folks were very concerned about this. And they're known for watershed restoration projects. So they come in and they make cuttings from local vegetation. Um, with the people of the town. People in the town go out and then basically Dan and Mary say, look for things that are you know, this high and this diameter and cut them down, bring them out of, out of whatever lots they found the, where you can cut those materials and actually do some good while you're doing it. And you weave it together into these structures and you create a kind of a weir and then you, you plant it, you live stake it down um, and you walk away and after three years you have a living bank when the hand of the artist is completely erased. It's just become part of Again, the functionality of that stream. It's a lovely project. They've done many of these projects. One reason they've done many of these projects is we commissioned them to work with the Nature Conservancy uh, in Nevada. 
Nature Conservancy, which moves a lot of dirt every year, um, often rewilding rivers, right? It's all about water. Um, had a problem, and they'd never worked with a sculptor before, and they said, can we, you, Bill, help us find a, a, an artist who could help us solve this particular problem? So this is a slough where water comes out of a river. It's an overflow area, and it is, mm, if they're not careful, that water is going to take out a bridge. And so they asked Daniel and Mary to do something to slow down the flow of the water, and at the same time, something that's healthy for wetlands. And so they create this, this 350-foot-long sculpture, again with the people of the town, um, and this is the day it was finished, and there were already, as I've said, endangered frogs hopping around in the sink, eating the insects that were already beginning to inhabit it. Um, there was a huge flood two years ago, when just after this was built, and the structure did just fine. So this is a, an example of an artist who studied with James Terrell, who took the vocabulary of land arts and the permission to do something on the land from the land artist, and actually makes a gesture in the land. And Jenny, you said, in fact, that land art was something that gave you guys permission. I think it was you, or maybe it was Michaela. I can't remember. One of you said that it, without land art, it, you know, it would be hard to imagine making that gesture of the line in the land. So this afternoon, I, I went home, and I took apart my entire PowerPoint presentation to change it to include these guys. This is Helen and Newton Harrison, and they are the folks who in North America invented eco-art in the mid-1960s. And Helen passed away two days ago. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, wanted to show their picture. Uh, they've, they've, they were in love and life for 45 years together, working together as an artist team. Um, they had legendary public quarrels that were part of their working process. Uh, so they would sit up in an audience like here, and they'd be in front of you, and they'd snark at each other. And you would hear the design of the project emerge as they did that. It was part of their, their, their working process. It was hilarious. Uh, Newton gets hired. He's a, he's a, a bronze sculptor in the 40s, um, or in the 50s, rather. He ends up as a, he's playing the tuba in a military band. Um, when he's done with his military service, he, he, he goes back to art school and makes a living as casting small bronzes. And he meets Joseph Boys. And boy, does his life change. So he ends up being, the, very shortly thereafter, the chair of the art department at the University of California, San Diego. And he's hiring, uh, he's hiring uh, Alan Capro, the guy who invented happenings, right? And he's hiring uh, Eleanor Anton, this major performance artist. He puts together the first avant-garde art department on the West Coast. And he and Helen are living above a lagoon in La Jolla, which is this kind of little town next to San Diego on the coast. And, um, and they notice the lagoon is dying. And they save it as an art project. First, they have to figure out the species. They have to figure out how to make these tanks that are both sculptures as well as functional tanks to put crabs in the keystone species that's missing that they reintroduce to the lagoon. They save the lagoon. And they have the lagoon project that for years goes around the world working on different wetland bodies and rescuing them and helping local people figure out what the environmental protocols are that are necessary to make them healthy wetlands again. That's the start of their career. Here they are fussing with one of their tanks. This was in the LA County Museum of Art's Art and Technology show, actually. Very famous exhibition in the 70s. So I called up Newton um, and Helen soon after um, I designed and then, and then was hired to run the Center for Art and Environment. And I said, so you guys did some work with the Sierra Nevada range once. That's our home mountain range outside Reno. Uh, it's what separates California, Nevada. It's about 400 miles long. It's 14,000 feet high at its tallest. It's a big range. And it's responsible for most of the water that California drinks um, and all of the water that Reno drinks. And, um, and I said, would you like to engage with the mountain range again? And they said, sure, we'd, we'd love to do that. 
And so the first question that Newton always asks is, what's my client? Who's our client? And he said, our client's a mountain range, and our client is in trouble. Our client um, is getting hotter, and species are, are marching upwards, and they're displacing uh, other species, or they're dying. They're just boiling off the top of the mountain. Scientists call that the rapture effect. Um, and what's happening is, as a result, the runoff, which is now more increasingly rain than it is snow, uh, the water quality is greatly degraded, and we've got to try and figure out how to fix that. So the first thing we did is we commissioned this incredibly detailed aerial satellite image. And um, you can actually get down and look at individual piles of logs on this. It's an amazing image. So we map it, and then they begin to develop texts in response. And then what they do is they come up with some protocols. Now, remember, they're used to working at scale. This is a project for the entire Tibetan plateau. It's a trillion-dollar project to reforest it so it protects the five rivers that flow out to the south into India and Pakistan. So they work at scale. And here are their plans for working in these valleys in the Sierra to actually help plant ensembles designed deliberately be planted and help slow down um, the runoff and increase the water quality to keep it good. Bless you. And all, so this marvelous mapping project goes with poetic text by Helen, ends up being experimental plots. We have a commitment as a museum to monitor this for 50 years and to present the results to the public. So it's an, a 50-year art project. And that's what it takes. If you're dealing with the world and you're dealing with change that's happening so quickly, actually, you have to have a slow response. Um, last project, uh, Long Now Foundation. Look it up online. Making a 10,000-year clock. This is West Texas where they're building it. That's what it looks like inside the, the ridge, the limestone ridge. It's a, a very elaborate, elaborate mechanism. They were originally going to do it in Nevada, up amongst these bristlecone pines. This is an artist named Jonathan Keats. Jonathan is wandering up at 11,000 feet with us, looking for a place to do this project. Looks like that. These are the oldest lived trees I know of. They're 5,000, as individuals. They're 5,000-year-old trees when they were mature. And Jonathan is going to plant titanium rods in the ground around five of these trees that are separated by a thousand years of growth. And the trees will, as they grow, subsume these titanium rods and basically form a biological clock. Now, and here's Jonathan giving a lecture about this in San Francisco at the Long Now Foundation's bar called The Interval. It's a great way. This should be a bar, by the way. It'd be a great venue for, a, for talks. Um, and what happens is Jonathan will take the data from those trees as they grow, send it to our museum in Reno, to a clock he's going to build in our lobby. And what's going to happen is that clock is going to express biological time. Those rods on the ground express Gregorian time that's mathematical. Those two timelines are going to diverge. That's a difference to which we pay attention because what drives the growth of bristlecone pines, among other things, is the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's what it takes to get that signal to Reno, someone climbing on a tower at 11,000 feet. So there you go. Those are examples of how artists can in interact with data and with information based on science, from science, in science, and help it get to a larger understanding of the public so that action will occur at some point. Policy will be made, politicians will vote, and action will be taken. Um, and they do that by populating that domain with empathy, with love of place, with understanding of other critters, and with a notion of time that's not just our notion of time, as we were talking about earlier today. Thank you very much.
Thank you, William. That was fantastic. And what a note to end on, my God, that deep time um, project. Uh, I felt, um, you know, these projects of uh, research with scientists that then they continue on and go back to create these other artworks, particularly the Nancy Sega one in the um, Harvard Museum I'd looked at. I just think they're, they're such rewarding um, projects that actually educate as well. And I think um, that's an amazing um, possibility that artists have of doing because um, we've always kind of thought of artists as seers, as, you know, creating um, the visible out of invisibility, out of showing us ways of seeing things differently and creating different perceptions and, you know, historically. And I thought it was very interesting how you look at the um, uh, that incredible painter, Larry, I didn't know his work, but the, um, and compare that to, you know, like a very traditional painting, you could take that, and the Edwin Church painting um, in the 18, what, what was sort of in the 1850s that was shown in, in New York, and for the first time created like an installation, like a window, and for the first time people saw the absolute detail of all the flora and fauna, and this installation experience of it um, brought such interest to it that actually it created the um, development of the national parks in America. And so there's a real effect of um, the artist, you know, doing something that... And, of course, as fast as Trump's undoing them, <laughs> there are, uh, it seems to me there are going to be all these other sort of spaces that are created with artist-scientist teams because I think that it is amazing the amount of work that's going on, really. A lot of it's almost invisible art because it's such a kind of difference between what we see in, in the galleries and in the, in, the, in the museums, a lot of the, the art museums, to this sort of research-based work, which I think is a real problem, and I think that it's really beginning to shift quite a bit. Um, I, I, I'm, nowhere was more apparent recently than in Venice, um, this year when they had the uh, Pavilion of the Diaspora right beside the Damien Hirst monstrous kind of <laughs> work. And so it was just like <laughs> the, the um, emotional work and the work about the reality of the world today as compared to that fiction about money. So I think this division is really getting huge and I sort of feel that now we're at this crisis point now with the recognition of climate change and um, artists f f really coming on board to work with it. I'm, and I, th I mean, I think it's going to quite the extreme now where there's all the political actions of artists in the museums, um, in the Tate. took six years to get rid of one of the fossil fuel um, backers of the place and then they got rid of um, um, one of the um, chair of the... Natural History Museum, and recently just in Melbourne, artists protested against the relationship between the security group and the, of the museum and the Nauru, um, and Nauru um, the camp, so to speak. So, of course, they've also been... The museum got rid of them too. So there is a really powerful way artists are able to speak once they're within the museum situation. And I think that um, these other projects that are going on are really interesting because a lot of the, these ones where artists working with biologists and 
and out in the field are actually conserving and transforming landscapes in ways that mightn't have happened otherwise. You know, because sometimes for an artwork, um, it, you can just do it. It doesn't have to serve any other purpose. But it's wonderful when they have to do one to to um, conserve a, a space and they're using artists on board with the scientists that make it much more public, then they can show it in the galleries or in the museum or whatever, or they can show it in some visitor centre exactly what's happening in a much more interesting way than a very didactic sort of display. And I think that's another thing that I feel that it's still possible for individual artists still to bring their own practice, especially into history and natural history museums, when they can work with collections and, um, and, and work in ways that the curators can't, and they can um, juxtapose and talk about pasts in another way and futures with climate change in particular. Um, they can show what's, you know, they can, they can show much more than, than the museums are often able to with, with, a, with, a, with curators. And, and also I think, you know, they can sort of create almost an ambush in the museum, the way they can create these spaces of other possibilities. And um, I also think that, um, just in responding, that I, I really start to wonder about people like Heiser and all these huge amounts of money that's all coming from <laughs> the oil, <laughs> you know, isn't it? And so that I, I start to wonder about building these massive projects and you say yourself, for what and who's going to experience them and what are they going to tell us about climate change or even the landscape really other than a, perhaps a great experience for those that can afford to go there. So I think that really we have, we're really at an amazingly interesting time because we've got these new sort of aesthetics developing. The one that seems to be coming out a lot of these um, action-based um, groups like the oil, the oil pipe in Dakota and all the artwork that's come out of that with a new sort of aesthetic. And, 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 I, and we're starting to see it a lot. And um, the other one, of course, is the extraordinary one about... It's sort of like a, sub, a sublime of the Anthropocene that we probably have to be a little bit careful of is with all our fantastic filming and photographic methods these days about looking at the disasters of the Anthropocene, like some of those images of, remember the BP oil spill with all the animals or with birds um, coated in oil that, you know, we were very confronted by those images, but somehow they've all entered into galleries and become a kind of another aesthetic and we have to be careful and I just wonder sometimes if those, those straight images is not enough, just presenting, presenting the documentation of something and, and I was thinking about it in relation to, we saw the A Weiwei film the other day, um, Human Flow, which was the most fantastic um, document of these horrific you know, stories that are going on and and, the, and his presence amongst these peoples and the overwhelming enormity of it has made him really question what can we do. But I think when it gets transformed into art that can bring out a much more kind of um, ambiguous and questioning and perceptual shift 
So we sort of need both. We need the, up, the real documentation. We need to confront what's really happening. But because we're overloaded with all of this sort of imagery, in the end it's just consumed. So we still we need the artist to, to transform that into something more meaningful and hopefully more enduring that can continue to educate us. So, I mean, I found your talk just so exciting and ex inspiring. I wish we had such a place here documenting environmental art because there is quite a bit happening here now and um, we really need it badly. And thank you so much for that. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for that. Fantastic. Um, in, in some ways, I'm not entirely sure why I'm here. I, uh, I'm not a researcher about environmentalism. I work in theatre and performance studies and have a collaboration with Michelle St. Anne, working around these things. And look, this is extraordinary. And, um, but I'm wondering whether I need to be here as a bit of a provocateur and, and a respondent. As I said, I, I work in theatre and performance studies. Uh, theatre and performance studies in particular has a long tradition of political engagement, as you all know, um, through figures as diverse as, as, say, Bertolt Brecht, through to Boal, um, people thinking about how can the art form contribute to uh, enlightenment to a progressive political agenda. Um, and I'm interested in the limits of that, the limits of performance in particular, which tells a story, which preaches, which is didactic, which attempts to represent and to teach. I'm not entirely convinced that that's what performance does best. Um, and, and so I, I was sort of picking up things that, that you were saying in, in terms of artists as respondents, as representers, as showers. And I'm wondering, is that what art best does? And it's, it's a kind of open question for me. Uh, one thing for me is, I. I, wor I worry about lots of things. I worry. I, I worry about this question of aestheticising horrible things. I was thinking about Herzog's film about the Gulf War. Extraordinary, beautiful. Um, and at the same time, thinking, gosh, it's good art. It is actually good art. I, I worry about um, construing art and artists as clients uh, in this diagram where artists are brought in to fill in this gap. I worry about that. I think that's a position artists are often put in. It's a kind of instrumentalisation or a, a you know, this is something that sort of thinks, you know, bloody science has screwed up the world, now they turn to artists to help solve the problems. And I worry about that. I, I'm interested in you bringing up the question of funding and this throwaway line about the CIA. But it is interesting because there, there is documentation that the CIA was quite instrumental in funding arts in the 50s in response to the perceived hegemonisation of Soviet art and sort of capturing the progressive imagination. So there's all sorts of fraught difficulties there. I, when I was thinking through this, I was also thinking about the, the, the most extraordinary work of performance art. Oh, so I've got so much I want to say. I think temporalisation is the really important thing you brought out. And I think that's what performance brings to the party rather than static representation. And I was really taken by the, the uh, moments where you touched on the idea of the performative as actually something being very important for us. I think the most important, uh, most amazing piece of work I saw recently, and I only saw it on YouTube, was Emma Gonzalez's uh, performance in Washington on the weekend. 
Uh, if people didn't see it, Emma Gonzalez is one of the students who survived the, um, the shooting in Florida, and she spoke at the, the mass rally in Washington. Well, the great thing was she didn't speak. She stood at a microphone for six minutes, 52 seconds. I mean, it was a, it was a work of Cajun brilliance. Um, but what was fascinating about that is that, that that work didn't represent, it didn't show, it opened up a new way of allowing the world to be seen. And I think that's a very different dynamic to showing, allowing something to come forth for people. What was extraordinary about the work is she stood there, stock still, tears started coming down her, her face. Extraordinary. Uh, and watching that audience trying to respond to what she did was amazing because people started chanting, then that died away. People started singing, and then that died away. And it became very clear to everybody that she was in it for the long haul. And you could see those nice cutaway shots of the crowd. They don't know. They don't know what they're being told. They don't know what they're being shown. They, they seriously don't know. And it keeps going. And then there's a little bip, bip, bip. Her timer goes off. She says, uh, six minutes, 47 seconds. The shooter has now stopped shooting. Utterly extraordinary piece of work, which I want to suggest, and this is what I, this is what I, what I want artists to offer the world, in contradistinction to this, and by way of a provocation, not to sit in there to be communicators or to uh, didacticise or to... Um, provide even to even to provide answers. I'm interested in an art practice which asks better questions about the world, and which actually leaves the question of what is to be done as a compelling question for everybody, not in terms of the solution that they offer. And and you know maybe that's also me sort of thinking through where performance is going in a lot of ways, uh, uh, pushing towards a radical openness rather than an attempt to to, well, close down is probably too hard, but to represent. Um, so, so that the idea is that uh, the audience, the spectators, and it's important also, I think, that events like the Emma Gonzalez thing happens um, in time and with bodies, and bodies sharing something, and creating a disturbance, creating a difference, to evoke that idea, which is not reconciled in the moment of spectatorship in order to create, ideally, an impulse to do something in response that isn't about an aesthetic appreciation, if that's one of the risks th that we have. Or, um, you know, I'll be really polemical about it, I don't think... I just worry about this idea of sort of, of being in the service of science, providing better ideas for science. That's, it's great, but I, but I actually would have a bigger aspiration, that what poetic thinking has to offer is a radical critique from the get-go of the instrumental thinking that's got us into this mess, and that that is actually something that needs to be blasted wide open. But you can argue with me about that. <laughs> but look up Emma Gonzalez. It's, it's rather extraordinary, because there's a, there's a clear sense that people don't know what's going on, have no idea how to respond to it, and it's that uh, the, the issue that Theatre and performance makers have always uh, wrestled with what do you want those people to do once they walk out of the door? And you don't necessarily want it to have been wrapped up and a solution offered. You actually want, 
I think Brecht said it all those years ago, you want them walking out into the world profoundly unhappy about what's going on with a drive, which I don't think is quite empathy either. I think it's something else. It's, a, it's almost in some ways the opposite of empathy. It's a sense of being knocked away from yourself in a profoundly embodied, intercorporeal way. And that's just me advocating for the art form that I most like, performance. I hope that's enough stuff to throw at you. Thank you.